I think I think it gets too heavy. I think it gets talked about too heavily in terms of their like their like general audience stuff, right? Like I think I, I think I think they've done a service in the sense that they've really tried to like go through the mechanical operations between the Treasury and the Fed and taxing and spending and try to lay it all out. Um, I've gone through some of that stuff. It's fascinating. It's extremely educational, but yeah, I think it is there. Yeah. It could kind of, it's just like when we have these generalized political debates, like out, like, you know, on like the major networks and all that kind of thing. Um, there's a real question of like, well, when you say like pay for the government spending or fund the government spending, what is meant by that? Do you mean literally where do the dollars come from? Or do you mean something a bit more generalized in the sense of like, how do we, uh, how do we manage the trade-offs inherent in government spending? Because the, the, the argument, because the point is not that there are not trade-offs. There are definitely trade-offs. The point is simply that you don't have to worry about where the money comes from. So I think there can be, there can be like, there can we can people can talk past each other in the sense that like the MMTers can be like we don't have to worry about where the money comes from and then the people who are saying how do you pay for it they're like well I didn't mean literally how do we get the money I mean how do we manage the trade offs right <laughs> welcome back to Left Anchor I'm Ryan Cooper and I'm Alexi the Greek and today we have our returning champion our favorite guest. Jeff Spross of the Week. Hi, everyone. Columnist. Yeah, there he is with that beautiful voice. Uh, welcome back, Jeff. Uh, as everyone should know by now, you write for the week on economics and politics. To get us started, because even to those that are in the know, MMT can be confusing to talk about, maybe you can, can lay out, um, for those that know a little, know nothing, or even for those putative experts out there, uh, what it is we're talking about when we talk about MMT and uh, perhaps why it's something uh, controversial to discuss. Right. Okay. I'll see. Let me see if I can do this. Um, so modern monetary theory is a school of thought that it it's it's grown up around a few different groups. Like uh, I'm probably going to get the names of the colleges wrong here, but like Kansas City, Missouri, Levy Institute, that kind of thing. Uh, the most probably, arguably, the most prominent person who's been advocating it is an economist named Stephanie Kelton, uh, who was, uh, oh, she was, she was like an economic advisor to the Senate Democrats, uh, before Bernie Sanders run. Uh, she's been involved in like Sanders efforts to like kind of get, a uh, you know, various policies together, Medicare for all that kind of thing. But there's a whole, there's a whole group of economists, uh, a few others like Scott Fulweiler, Randall Ray, that kind of thing. Um, anyway, that's, so if you see their names, like, and, and yeah. I, and I believe, Ste I believe Stephanie Kelton is currently an ad economic advisor to Bernie She might Sanders currently be. Yeah. I, I honestly, like, honestly, mm -hmm. I haven't, I haven't kept up. She is. I don't know. <laughs> um, so the theory, uh, or at least the, the basic gist, is that the United States um, is essentially, and this is a, a common thing, obviously, in a lot of modern Western economies, is a fiat currency issuer, which is to say the United States federal government, the national government, has a currency, the U.S. dollar, 
and it can make as much of that currency as it wants. And whenever a government has this ability, that comes with a great deal of special economic powers that really, like, you know, your, your average politician will talk about the, you know, the government as, a, as akin to a household budget. You know, we have to, when times are tight, the government has to like tighten its belt the same way households have to tighten it. And the basic point that modern monetary theory makes is that this is actually backwards for a government that like controls its own currency. And this is true of Britain, which obviously has the pound. It's true of Australia, which has their dollar. It's true of Canada, which has their dollar. It's true of any government that like has its own currency, has a central bank to backstop it, and doesn't either rely on a gold standard or peg its currency to some other currency. It's just like the government is the government with the central bank. The central bank is just an arm of the national government in each case, and the central bank, you know, orchestrates the creation of as much money as they feel is necessary at any given moment, and there's no like ceiling on that. I mean, you can and completely also, you can completely fuck up your economy, but there's no like there's no like you know concrete limit on how much money you can create. You you never run out. And the the just a and maybe an important side note here: the U.S. like most of the economies borrows in that same currency. Right. So this, this um, is an, uh, this is an, a, an important distinction. Um, I mean, like most major economies, Australia, Britain, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, um, they have to borrow a bit more in a currency they don't control. Uh, so, like, you know, Britain will have some U.S. dollar of a store, of like debt in U.S. dollars. It will have some debt in euros. It will have some debt in a few other currencies. Um, but, um, yeah, the U.S. is unique in the sense that it never, ever has to borrow in any currency except its own. And, and can we explain why that is an advantage? But, why is that helpful? So um, it's a, I should say, first off, it's kind of like a historical leftover of the uh, kind of the, the, the aftermath of World War II and the Bretton Woods system. Um, and the result of all that is that basically all international trade, something like 97% occurs with dollars on one side of the trade. So basically everyone in the world has to use U.S. dollars Every country in the world has to use U.S. dollars to engage in trade with another country. Um, and what that means is that you have to have some amount of U.S. dollars on hand to uh, finesse your trade flows, to, like, you know, have some backstop if, like, you run out, you, you can't sell enough exports and you can't afford the imports you need. You need some excess dollars on hand. And if you don't have the excess dollars on hand, you have to go borrow them. And the thing, and the, the key distinction is that, like, if you borrow in a currency you don't control, which is to say if Britain borrows in dollars or if Australia borrows in U.S. dollars, they can run out and they can't make more. Right. Like if they were if the Britain if Britain borrows in the pound, which is like the vast majority of Britain's debt is denominated in the pound like that, it, 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 it can never suffer a debt crisis in its own currency because it can create as many pounds as it wants. Um, but it is possible for countries to suffer a debt crisis in a currency they don't control. And this is actually quite common for uh, developing countries. Uh, Turkey is going through this right now, a very, very. 
catastrophic version of this crisis is undergoing in Venezuela right now. Um, but for the U.S., it it never has to borrow in any foreign currency. Like all it has to worry about is U.S. dollars, which it can print U.S. dollars to the skies and never run out. Uh, so it can never, it can never, ever, ever default. Like it will never go quote unquote bankrupt. And to be clear, we don't even have to print the dollars, right? Like I'll, I'll, it's not necessarily how many dollars are actually in circulation. There's a lot of just zeros and ones that you adjust right in the accounting. Isn't that also true? Okay. So yeah. So, I mean, we say print money, which is like a colloquialism. The vast majority of money creation in the economy is not physical cash, right? Like, um, really like the physical cash is printed at the treasury, but like, you know, it's, it's, it's distribution through the economy is coordinated by the federal reserve, but the federal reserve can be thought like, you know, um, when you, when you're given your social security check or you're, uh, you know, a government contractor and you get paid, uh, the money isn't, you're, you're not handed, you know, it's not like they print the money at the treasury and they hand you a bag of cash. The money shows up in your bank account and the uh, the Federal Reserve is basically the connection point between the U.S. Treasury and the banking system writ large. So when the U.S. government wants to pay you for your work on a bridge as a contractor or wants to give you your Social Security check, it just tells the Federal Reserve, hey, like, you know – hit a button and create new digital money like in this person's particular bank account at whatever like private bank they bank at and off the money goes. Right. So some countries can, they can use their buttons in that very powerful way. Right. In other countries, they don't have the, that right. button power. Well, basically. every country has that button power if they issue their own currency so, like, even Venezuela has its own currency, the Bolivar. It's just, in Venezuela's case, and this is also true in a lot of other developing countries, um, they are deeply dependent on certain imports. Like, Venezuela almost makes none of it. Like, has very, very little of its own food comes from its own domestic agricultural production. Almost all of its food comes from imports from the rest of the world. It has to get a hold of dollars to get those imports. So it's like a lot of a lot of developing and poorer countries out there, just like huge parts of their economies are essentially done in another currency they have no control over and that they can run out of. So <clears throat> that's a that's a good you know a, a a portrait of the sort of fiscal situation but but why does that matter in the context of like the modern US economy and the political debate about what should be done about taxation and the national debt right so um the way to think about this is that ultimately uh the thing that matters in what fiscal policy can do and what fiscal policy's limits are are the real resources in the economy, which is to say more than anything else, like the number of human beings you have who, you know, are willing to do labor, but also your physical resources, uh, construction materials, steel, lumber, fuel, um, basically everything that actual real concrete economic activity occurs in the things that we use to build our houses, the materials we need to build our cars to make our electronics and all the rest of it. Um, the money is just a coordinating mechanism for all that economic activity. Um, and what, and so the actual limit is you can think of the economy as, 
trying to think of the right metaphor here. I usually, I kind of think of it as like a hydraulic tank. Um, and the money that the, that the government issues is the water in the tank. And you need enough water to like pressurize the tank so the hydraulic system works properly, properly. But you don't want so much water that you're like blowing the gaskets off, right? Like if it gets over – like literally economists will refer to, the, to pressure in the economy and a high-pressure economy as one where inflation is going up. Um, and that is the actual limit is that if you, if you essentially issue too many dollars into the economy or issue them in the wrong way, uh, you will drive up inflation. On the other hand, if you don't have enough dollars in the economy, uh, you will leave resources unused on the table. And again, since most of the resources are human beings, that means higher unemployment, uh, which translates into lower wages, et cetera, et cetera. Um, as for the national debt, basically, like I said, there could never be a bankruptcy. You can never default. So the actual challenge that the debt represents is not that we will ever – the problem is not that we could ever fail to be able to pay the debt or that paying off debt obligations or paying debt service like interest on the debt will quote unquote crowd out other spending. Like we can't run out of money so we can't like have spending be crowded out. But the interest payments on the debt are themselves money that goes into the economy and thus are themselves potentially inflationary. Um, whether they're inflationary – comes down to a very complex question of uh, basically how ownership of the debt is distributed. Um, most of the debt pause, is let's owned pause real by quick. Ma- yeah. Just because people might be thinking of all these debt ceiling crises and, and, and thinking what's going on there if we can't default. Because it is true that we can stupidly arrange our own laws to force ourselves into crises, even though we can't technically default. We right. can make ourselves. We can. Right? We can. Like, so maybe explain explain that a little bit for people. Okay, right, right. Yeah, I mean, the debt crisis is literally, there's just a law that says we can't have, we can't issue more debt than X amount. And every so often they raise X amount. The problem that you have is that, like, you know, if you already have debt and you're trying to roll it over, you might have to issue more debt to pay the debt obligations you already have. And so if you have a ceiling on the total amount of debt you can issue, you can hit a point where like you can't you can't roll over any more debt so you can't pay the debt obligations you already have. Um, yeah, so all those showdowns are, are completely politically created, have no economic right, basis, right. they're totally so like, un, unforced errors. If you, a individual consumer in the economy or an individual household, you are literally capable of running out of money. Like, there is none more for you, and if you just print some money, you are breaking the law and the cops will come for you. Like, the government is literally the unique entity in the economy with the legal right to create more money. So it, it can never run out. It can be so dumb that it just says to itself, I'm just not going to make money on some principled ideological stance and thus fail to pay my creditors. But it can never like concretely run out of money involuntarily the way an individual or a household or a business or even a state or local government can run out. So, so then here's where ideology and economic theory come into play. So we are doing these unforced errors, presumably 
in some sense, because some people think there's an economic theory that says there will be inflation if we don't, if we stop, you know, if we we don't stop deficit spending, or if we don't uh, control the the debt, there will be these inflationary problems. And that is a political stance people take based on some theory. So can you tease out for us who's right, who's wrong, and what the difference is between the different economic theories that might include the differences, if any, between uh, Keynesian economics and MMT. Right. That's a big, big question. Yeah. Okay. So there are, I think there are like, there are lots of layers of different theories that like people in Congress and people in these political debates are relying on. And they run the gamut from like well thought out economic principles to just like rule of thumb folk theories. Um, I think that's my impression anyway. Um, so like a lot of Congress people, I mean, the arguments they, I mean, they are literally just like reasoning from the government is a household and the government can run out of money. And that's their argument for why we need to, excuse me, why we need to like not have deficits go too high, why we need to control the amount of debt we have. That's the, why we need to control the amount of debt the national government has, that sort of thing. And I mean, that's just flat out wrong. Like, uh, you know, the government cannot, like I said, the government cannot run out of money. And the truth is... Most economists, or at least sophisticated economists, or knowledgeable ones, in my impression, uh, and I would include, like, say, probably most of the economists from the center right to the center left, like people who work at AEI, people who worked in the Obama administration, they all understand this. Like, they get that, like, the government can't actually run out of money. This is common knowledge. Um, The disagreement comes in – the disagreement comes in two forms. The first is – how much how much capacity is there in the economy at a given moment to absorb how much deficit spending so you know there is uh when the when the trump administration did its tax cuts like this was going to be big deficits right big new deficits coming down the pike so like a lot of people like you know jason Furman, who used to work with the obama administration a lot of other former obama economists they're like this is a bad idea like this is going to uh you know this is going to add deficits when we're already near full employment um because look at the unemployment rate it's so low we're below four percent like if you add this much deficit spending while we're this close to full employment or full use of all our, our real economic resources, you're going to get inflation. Um, and well, that turned out to be wrong for two reasons. The first reason is that um, by all accounts, we are not close to full and true full employment. I mean, we're closer than we were at the you know depths of the Great Recession. But uh, there are various metrics for be it like, you know, prime age, the prime age employment rate, the labor force participation rate, uh, various measures of potential GDP that basically say we actually could very well have like a very big gap still in like between like how many real resources we are using and how many real resources we have total. Uh, So that was the one problem. The other problem is that like uh, the the deficit spending by the tax cuts – didn't actually go into employing new resources for the most part. For the most part, it went into corporate profits, which went to shareholder payouts, which just got reinvested in more bidding over financial assets in the stock market. And, you know, it did not lead to that many new people being hired or that many wages going up. Um, Let's see. So I might have – I'm trying to figure out how to wrap this up for your question. So I think – 
I mean, we need to get to like the the, the distinctest the distinction between like the Keynesians and the Emmentiers, right? Yeah, yeah. So this, yeah, this may be a good place to <clears throat> bring that up. So, you know what what you said, you know, is is, is like um, Alice Rivlin, right? Died today. Who was this, the first female uh, CBO director, if I'm not mistaken? You know, pioneering woman. Also, a horribly toxic advocate of austerity and deficit reduction. She was part of the uh, Bull Simpson Commission, you know. And this, there has been this this uh, hegemonic ideology, which I think only really has traction on uh, blinkered center left politicians like Barack Obama and Joe Biden. That's like, oh, the deficit really matters. Really got to get this down. You really got to think about this really hard. It's very important, um, and. Especially when you're in a when you're in a bad recession, that's the opposite. the The deficit should go up. Yeah. And when when uh, when um, Barack Obama, you know, he pivoted to deficit reduction in like February of 2010 with his budget of that year, he just doomed the party to getting wiped out in the 2010 midterms because unemployment was still nine point eight percent, I believe. So you know. In terms, in in terms of the 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 ideology that grips the brains of the kind of very serious people in in um, Washington D.C. when they're talking about the budget, that's all well taken. But uh, if you read uh, John Maynard Keynes's book, you know the general theory of employment, interest, and money, or whatever it's called, that analysis, which is uh, somewhat different from the way that you've described your, you know, MMT thinking. You that pops out. In fact, it's de- the whole point of it is designed to deal with the same question of recessions and what 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 sovereign countries should do in recessions. So yeah, how does the 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 Keynesian perspective differ from the MMT perspective? Okay, so the first thing I'll say is like you know I'm not. I'm not like a formal expert or anything. I'm basically like a yeah. No, no. We said that you are. We said that you're. I'm just like so. Like I will. I will do my best to try to tease out what I understand the differences to be. Um. So, first off, I think to say is that there's an enormous amount of overlap between the two. Like the differences are pretty fucking technical. Like because yeah, like this is basically Keynes's thing is the the economy has a certain amount of capacity. Like if if there's a recession and use of that capacity falls, you need to deficit spend more to fill the gap. Uh, so yeah, I think there is the first thing to say is there's there's a huge amount of overlap. Um, in practice, I mean, like I've talked to like different economists who would consider themselves Keynesians to varying degrees, who are like hardcore progressives, who are not like who would not consider themselves MMTers. And I think there's a few different disagreements. Um, I, I think on one level, there's uh, some progressive Keynesians just have a certain amount of – they're not entirely sure if like the debt load could someday get too big. But there seems to be a kind of vague 
thing like, well, we're not sure what all the knockoff effects of that could be. Maybe it is something we should be worried about as like a prudential thing. Like obviously it's not a huge deal, but maybe we should be concerned about it. Um, I think another, I think one difference is that there is definitely just analytical disagreement about like how much capacity is left in the economy, how to measure that and, uh, you know, what's going to happen, like how much inflation could we get and how quickly if we overuse capacity. Um, and I, what, another thing that I don't know if it's entirely fair to the non MMTers, but one thing that I've noticed is I think MMT people tend to pay, um, they tend to pay more attention to the market of the the price structure effects of various forms of spending. So one thing I think you see, like even amongst people who would view themselves as like progressive Keynesians is like, there tends to be a treatment of spending as just kind of like a big aggregate thing, right? Like we figure out, okay, we have so many percentage points of GDP left to fill in. Like we have, that's how big our gap is. So we can have so many percentage points of deficit spending and there might not be that much, they might not go into that much detail about what kind of deficit spending it is. But one thing I do think you see with the MMT people is a bit more focus on like, well, what, what exactly is this spending? What will the effect be? So like, say with uh, Medicare for all, um, you're spending, you know, shit tons of hundreds of billions or maybe a trillion or more in the economy every year. Um, but what does that spending do? Like on the one, like for, on the one hand, you're going to, you're going to free up an enormous amount of money that people now spend on their healthcare, on co-pays and premiums and all that kind of thing. That will be new demand in the economy that will fill in capacity. Eventually that will be inflationary. I mean, it might not cause inflation, but it pushes up on the economy in a way that if you hit capacity, then you'll get inflation. Um, but uh, Medicare for all also would wipe out the private health insurance industry. So that's a that's a whole ton of spending that goes away. Um, uh, it wipes out uh, the over a lot of the overhead costs that uh, come along with the private health insurance industry. That goes away, gets replaced with nothing. Uh, so these are deflationary effects, actually. These are like things that push down on the economy. And then you have the fact that any like Medicare for all uh, operation worth its salt would like probably put a lot more bargaining pressure on providers, especially on pharmaceutical companies to drive down prices um, in various places in the health sector. So that too is a deflationary event. Now it's like, you know, you have so you have deflationary forces, you have inflationary forces all mixed in. How do they net out? Well, that's what you need to figure out. Um, but they it, are you saying, Jeff? Jeff, are you saying that the Keynesians don't do this in-depth analysis of the combination of inflationary deflationary effects, and therefore they underestimate how much spending can be done because they're not considering all these things? Or, or what? What, what are you saying? Um, this is distinguishing MMTers so from Keynesians? I, I, in what, in what? I, the way I would put it is I see that kind of analysis more often from the MMTers, but I, I like, I definitely, like, it It comes and goes on the other side, I guess, is maybe the way I would put it. And like I said, I, I want to be careful here because, like, I don't, I, 
I do not want to be unfair to like the progressive Keynesian people who do not consider themselves MMTers. Like I think, and it's also kind of a question of like, what part of the conversation are you seeing? Like if you're seeing like really serious wonky conversations, like in back channels and that kind of thing, it can be a lot more sophisticated, a lot more detailed. And then it comes out like, you know, in the policy proposals at the end and the big PR releases. And it's like, well, here's all the ways we're going to pay for like, every last dollar that we're going to spend on Medicare for all, even though it's like, well, maybe if we actually go through it, you need to like, you know, offsetting taxes for like half of it, maybe, you know, that kind of thing. Right, right, right. Yeah. And I, I don't, I, it's, and this is the thing is like, I think the distinction between like the progressive Keynesian and the MMTers can get pretty blurry, but like it's. Well, well, but like we see, I think so. Tell me if this is true for both of you. We see more support for higher spending initiatives from MMT economists than from Keynesians generally. Like, if if you're going to say one side is more conservative or reticent to spend like an extra trillion a year on a Green New Deal or whatever, right? Like, there's probably some economic theory that makes MMTers more likely to be like, yeah, go for it. Whereas the Keynesians might be less ready to do that. And this is maybe what you're suggesting. Yeah, I think, I mean, that I don't know, Ryan, I think you, I would, I mean, I'd be curious what your perspective is on that as well, in terms of like, just kind of like the political elasticity of what positions each group is willing to take. Yeah, I would say on the one hand, um, that the, the uh, sort of mainstream liberal Keynesians, are often a little sloppy or maybe politically opportunistic. You know, you do see analyses of the multiplier effect, you know, like what type of spending is going to be more, uh, you know, going to create more economic activity. Tax cuts are less than just direct spending on public works projects and so on. Um, but yeah, as you said, there is also a tendency to to maybe pull back you know, when when it's a Republican doing a, a a bad fiscal stimulus in the form of tax cuts, and be like, "Uh oh, deficits matter again." Now we're going to have a, you know, we're going to have an interest rate spike, and that doesn't happen. I guess on the other hand, I would say that there is a a tendency among MMTers to really downplay the role of taxation. Um, that you know, oh, you don't need taxes to to fund government spending and there's a lot of like the like uh kelton has a elaborate paper on the specific mecha- uh, mechanics of how uh the the accounting works when the government sort of funds itself and you know trying to downplay the idea that taxes are necessary to 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 fund anything and that i think well but ryan yeah. Let me ask you, if, are you objecting to that? Because there's two different reasons to object to that, it seems to me. One could be that it's not true, that she's wrong on the economics, right? And that it is indeed important to fund things through taxes. Uh, on the other hand, I could see a lefty uh, response that says, I don't really care if it's economically necessary. I think there's a political good in taxing the wealthy and taxes uh, operate in a way more than just funding the economy. Uh, and, and there are important things that, that are politically salient there. So I think it's important to distinguish which are the two critiques that you're, you're um, using. Well, I would say it's, it's both, you know, because um, 
you know the the more the the sophisticated MOT people they say yeah you you need taxes to um offset uh inflation right and so if you were to bump up the US tax level by 10 percentage points of GDP to fund a welfare state well you couldn't just fill that all in by printing probably you would have to you know suck some money out of the economy to um offset inflation uh and on the other hand i i would say like like well this maybe gets into the the distributional aspect of like but like busting up the nat like national debt a lot you know because the thing about the thing about um the national debt is that you know it's mainly held by rich people and if you're issuing a ton of interest-bearing bonds you're basically paying rich people to to sort of sit on money right and that may be necessary in certain circumstances, but if you can get to a place where, like, you don't need, uh, you know, you, you could orchestrate your economic institutions such that you don't have to do that, I feel like that would be a, maybe a more ideal situation. But, you know, again, the more sophisticated MMT people, I think, have, they, they, they'll push, they'll, they'll, they'll have, you know, convincing responses to that but i do often see from the sort of like uh you know fellow travelers or whatever the 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 kind of mmt crowd on twitter that it's just like contemptuous of the idea that, that you need taxes for anything you know and you can just kind of do whatever you want so yeah go ahead Jeff. yeah so like i i i mean like i think ryan's on to several things there that i agree with and that i think should be elaborated on um or that i would like to elaborate on um, yeah, I mean, like the first thing is like, you know, there is definitely this phenomenon. And I think this happens everywhere with like every true, po- particular true. political movement. But yeah, you have like the core group of MMT people who have done a lot of thought on this and a lot of work. I mean, literally they've been building this like system of thought for like the last two or three decades in like a few like, you know, little grottos in the academic world and no one's been paying attention to them until now. Um, I think that's an important point, though, Jeff. You should mention how much research and work has been yeah. done by this group of economists that is new and that adds actual scholarship to economics. Yeah. There's right? a huge amount, and like I myself have not read nearly enough of it. Um, but yeah, there's a shit ton of papers. They've issued plenty of books. They have textbooks that they've issued that, like you know, you know, not. I, I don't think I don't know how many economics courses use them, but they're available. Um, And, like, I do think there's, like, there's, in terms of, like, the political debate around MMT, this matters in the sense that, like, they've just as kind of like a human group social dynamic. They've been at this for a long time. Suddenly they're getting attention and, you know, there's this kind of conflict of, like, on the one hand, they want to get out there and get their – get, like, everyone to know about what they're doing. On the other hand, there's, like, a kind of – they're very uh there's a combativeness because like you've been like on the outs for so long and suddenly like you're like well why didn't everyone pay attention to me before kind of thing um and then on the other hand like um they have done so much work and they have such a detailed system of thought set out that like in some ways overlaps closely with like progressive keynesianism and then in other ways like goes way out into new areas that are just like completely beyond what people are thinking of, have been thinking of that um, 
it can make the conversation difficult. So like there was this thing that uh, two economists, J.W. Mason and another guy who whose name I embarrassingly cannot pronounce, but they did a paper that essentially. Arjun Jayadev. That is his name. Thank you. Um, that essentially used function, an idea called functional finance as a kind of, I mean, and Mason himself uh, said later, it's like, okay, look, functional finance is not the same thing as MMT, but we kind of used it as like a stand in for MMT for these purposes. And functional finance is just the idea that like you use taxes and spending to balance the economy at full employment rather than using taxes and spending to like quote unquote balance the budget. But um, this caused a bit of a hoo-ha because, um, you know, on the one hand, it was a very – the paper was very good. Like it was a very well thought out like application of these ideas. On the other hand, the MMT people were like, this is not what we mean, right? And I think one reason that people reached for functional finance as like a stand-in for MMT was because it was like the closest step over from like the current macroeconomic setup. It's like functional finance was far enough over to be an interesting change but still within the realm of what people could conceive of. Um, uh, so there's this kind of problem of like, now that the mainstream is paying attention to MMT, there's this huge amount of scholarship out there that it needs to like absorb to like have a detailed discussion about MMT at the same time, people in the mainstream have lives and they can't read everything. And, you know, uh, so they make, you know, assumptions and they use kind of quick and easy heuristics, which is totally understandable. And then on the other side, the MMT people are like, this is not what we mean. This is a gross oversimplification. This is wrong, blah, 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 which is also totally understandable. And it kind of turns into like a, uh, it can be a mess. And then it's just a thousand times worse when you run it through Twitter, which is a terrible platform for anyone to have a discussion on. It should be burned to the ground, but that's a separate, <laughs> that's a separate issue. Anyway, I think I went on a digression there about the human social dynamics of this debate. So let me refocus. What was the question? <laughs> I guess maybe to wrap up this, the, the, uh, the MMT piece here, uh, a lot of the MMT literature that I've read is, is as I said, very focused on, on tracking the specific uh, accounting mechanisms of how precisely the government funds itself with the objective of, of sort of proving that taxation isn't really how the, how the government is like, like funding its day-to-day operations. But I think, you know, the, one of the things I like about MMT is that it's sort of taking a step back into the broader macroeconomy when it's you're talking about fiscal policy to deal with, um, you know, to, to say that like taxing and spending and borrowing, whatever, what really matters is the overall performance of the economy, whether you have full employment and inflation that's not too high. And I think that focus on the accounting stuff is somewhat misguided to say, to say that, like, well, taxation is not really funding the government. Like, what what funds the government is the, the concert of all of the government institutions operating in concert, it seems to me. Maybe you can correct me on this. But, you know, the, like, you have your taxes, you have your your uh, sovereign currency issuer, you have your, your debt that is denominated in your own currency, 
you have your infrastructure and and so on. Um, you have your broad political legitimacy throughout the whole country, and and on and on and on. All of that works together to fund the government, and um, you know whether like the particular order in which dollars are exchanged between like various government departments is kind of missing the point. I would say, and well, I mean, you know, you, we were talking about the UK. UK has a much more limited ability to fund itself compared to the United States by printing money because it doesn't have the world's reserve currency. And that's the thing that, you know, the U.S. does have. So, you know, perhaps um, it seems to me as though, like, like, that particular focus of MMT, would you say, Jeff, is is somewhat misguided in, in terms of its, you know— particular focus i think i think it gets too heavy i think it gets talked about too heavily in terms of their like their like general audience stuff right like i think i i think i think they've done a service in the sense that they've really tried to like go through the mechanical operations between the treasury and the fed and taxing and spending and try to lay it all out um i've gone through some of that stuff it's fascinating it's extremely educational but yeah, I think it is there. Yeah, it could kind of it's just like when we have these generalized political debates like out like, you know, on like the major networks and all that kind of thing. Um, there's a real question of like, well, when you say like pay for the government spending or fund the government spending, what is meant by that? Do you mean literally where do the dollars come from? Or do you mean something a bit more generalized in the sense of like how do we uh, how do we manage the trade offs inherent in government spending? Because the 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 argument because the point is not that there are not trade offs. There are definitely trade offs. The point is simply that you don't have to worry about where the money comes from. So I think right. there good. can be there can Very be like point. there can we can people can talk past each other in the sense that like the MMTers can be like. We don't have to worry about where the money comes from. And then the people who are saying, how do you pay for it? They're like, well, I didn't mean literally how do we get the money? I mean, how oh, do we so manage that's a great the point, Jeff. Right? That's a great point. Because what, what you're saying is perhaps that the talking past each other is specifically – because just to back up a little, there is a great service to debunk as much as possible for the citizenry at large the kind of household budget model that, that we've just talked about being trash and, and totally right not applicable to the government. So there is a service in saying, no, no, you don't need to fund things the same way that a household needs to fund things. Uh, but there is, as you say, a trade-off between, say, uh, borrowing from the future. So there is a sense in which, you know, you are um, doing something now, possibly at the expense of the future, but that might be a trade-off worth doing, and that's the debate that should be had. But when people say, you know, where's the money coming from, maybe what they mean is, why, why are you saying it's better to, you know, borrow against the future or, or why aren't you explicitly talking about this trade? Right. Now, the other thing I would say is that one, one help that I think does exist in going through the mechanics of that kind of thing is it can expand your idea of what the options are. Right. So like we say, OK, we want to build a bridge like we want to build a bridge. You know, the national government wants to build a bridge somewhere. Um and okay, if we're not at full employment, great. We deficit spend to we deficit spend to fund this thing. 
Um, but that raises the question, okay, we're issuing bonds. All right. Okay. So like normal operations, we deficit spend, the money goes out, we don't raise any taxes, but we do issue bonds. The national government issues bonds to cover the spending. Well, those bonds are going to pay interest. Who's going to have the bonds? Well, like Ryan said, it's mainly going to be rich people. They're going to get the interest payments. Inequality will go up. Do we want that? Is that good? Is that like, is there something we could do to mitigate that? And so then if you know the mechanical operations, you can start going through, well, you know, could we issue bonds with a lower interest rate? Could we issue bonds with no interest rate? Uh, now, the question becomes like, would the market still buy those bonds under those conditions? And the thing to note there is that ultimately the point of issuing bonds is not to get the money, quote unquote. You don't need to get the money from anywhere. The point of issuing bonds is that bond, issuing bonds is one operation among one operational option among several for managing inflation if it shows up. Um, so you can start like, and there's no perfect answer, but you can start working through the options. Like, should we start thinking of entirely new debt instruments? That the federal government should issue. Should it should we go to a system where we just like sometimes we don't issue bonds at all and we rely on taxes to um, absorb any any inflation that might occur? Um, and this gets into uh, I'll just and I'll just make one more final point, then like you guys can jump back in. I think this also gets to like one other thing where I think MMT is pretty different from the other schools of thought and that it seems to me they have actually they they have I mean you can you can agree or disagree with their conclusions but they have done an enormous amount of detailed thought in how inflation actually works and I what I mean by that is like if you look at like the mainstream accounts of inflation it tends to be a very crude model of like we have workers, unemployment falls too low, we run out of workers, wages get bid up, then inflation goes up. Now, um, we have not actually seen that kind of inflation, arguably since World War II. Um, that was clearly an instance when we saw, like, you know, we just overpressurized the economy because we had to fight a goddamn world war. Um, and so we shoved way more spending through the economy and, like, used up every single resource to build bombs and planes and everything else. Um, and we got, well, I don't know, like, Ryan, you might know the numbers on this better than I, but I think, like, generally speaking, we got up to 10% inflation during the war years, if not higher. Um, it was it was fairly limited, but, but uh, that was largely due to just... Uh, economy-wide price controls right. and rationing. Right. It is a hugely invasive structure of, you know, like you can't you can't get it was like so much gasoline, so much rubber and so on and yeah, a lot of right. steel drives and whatnot. So this crude model of inflation is really what the Federal Reserve's monetary policy is based around, right? It's like, well, if we're, you know, if we're getting too high to using up all the workers, we need to raise interest rates and that will like, you know, I mean, basically the point of raising interest rates is to raise unemployment a little bit more so that the economy cools off. Um, and the point you see made by a lot of the MMT crowd is that First off, if you go through the mechanics of how monetary policy actually works, their argument is that it's actually a very muddy, not super focused, rather contradictory way to like stimulate or cool off the economy. It actually works in ways that are much more complex and much less reliable than like the kind of 
crude generalizations from the mainstream about how monetary policy works actually are. So their point is this system we have of like raising and lowering interest rates through the Federal Reserve to control like the macro economy is not a good system for controlling inflation. And what they propose is really – this is probably where MMT goes the furthest goes the furthest out. Um, you talk to various people and I'm thinking like Scott Fulweiler, Rohan Gray, um, a few others, Kelton too, that kind of thing. But they really envision a vast array of institutional policy operations for managing inflation. And I'm talking like price controls like what Ryan mentioned. Um, they consider like an enormous amount of like different regulatory dials we could introduce into the banking system um, and like why like regulating the banking system could be important for inflation is something we can get into. Um, and they're basically, uh, I mean, like they wrote, like some of them wrote an article in the Financial Times not too long ago that kind of got into this. But basically, they imagine a kind of coordinated effort. I mean, antitrust is involved in this as well, uh, but just like a coordinated effort between a lot of regulatory agencies that would kind of go through the economy and surgically find places where inflation is happening and figure out what the fix needs to be, as opposed to this crude kind of broadsword that the Federal Reserve brings with interest rates, where it's just like, oh, we're worried inflation might be happening. Okay, we're just going to like hike interest rates a few basis points and like, you know, that's going to throw some people out of work and it's going to cause some businesses so, to collapse. And So let me ask, Jeff. Yeah. This is very interesting. I'm, I'm excited now because I have a few questions yeah. about this. So uh, do you think the resistance to MMT is either the, uh, I don't know, progressive Keynesians or whomever uh, don't buy the the more sophisticated ways that MMTers say they can actually control inflation? Or is there more of an ideological, uh, because you could also see this politically, hesitancy to let the government, because it suggests, I think, the government would get really involved in controlling the economy in a way that is definitely not laissez-faire, and, and especially when you talk about price controls and all that. Is there an antipathy or a resistance to the ways in which you'd be giving so much power of regulation. Uh, how much do you think the former and the latter play into the resistance to the, to the MMT proposals? Because this is really interesting. So I think, I think there's definitely the first. I think a lot of people, even in the progressive Keynesian space, they imagine there are two, there are two tools for controlling inflation. Uh, there's interest rates and there's taxes. And we've settled on interest rates to do it. And that's probably better than taxes on the whole. It's a kind of prudential economic, prudential political judgment, I should say. Um, and the idea of this kind of, like I said, like large array of regulatory agencies and other things like getting involved in controlling inflation is kind of so far beyond the models they have in their heads that it's just um, Jordan, Jordan Weissman has had this great line that he told me that it's like, and he meant it generously. He did not mean it to be like cynical or insulting, but like he described MMT as kind of like macroeconomic science fiction because like it is like this extraordinarily like wide imaginative take 
on a completely different like institutional setup for managing inflation. Like it really is just completely different from anything we're thinking about right now. Um, and like, you know, you can go through it and maybe you think it's obviously it's something we could do and maybe it's not like I, 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 I don't know. But, but aren't, aren't economists theorists though that they, they, you know, I had a professor once who said, I had a professor once who said, if assumptions were horses, economists would ride. And, and so I, I think economists are generally fine with relying on pure theory. So, so I, I find it hard to believe that they would, res- I mean, if they've read the MMT scholarship and they're just like, I don't know, I would have to have a lot of faith on something we haven't tried practically. Is that really the, the resistance or do they have a problem with the scholarship? I don't know. I mean, like, honestly, like that would take like a lot of deep conversations with these people that I haven't had. Like I'm trying to like kind of go off what I've seen from like, you know, pieces written and a few conversations I've had and like Twitter wars and all the rest of it. Um, but yeah, I think there I think the other point you made, though, is good, is that um, a, a, a war, like the World War Two political economy of like that very kind of detailed government managerialism uh, to kind of keep the economy at full employment, but to keep inflation from rising too much in any particular way. Um, that is, you know, I think a fair analogy of like the kind of end game that MMT uh, imagines. And uh, I think, yeah, there, I think there's just a lot of uh, instinctual, even even I think a lot of people on the progressive side and the Keynesian side have internalized a set of instincts around like the limits of what government bureaucracy can be expected to achieve and the limits of what like uh, government bureaucracy as like influenced by democratic politics can be expected to achieve in terms of precision, in terms of timing in terms of weighing of outcomes and weighing of priorities. And I mean, like you, you look at the arguments for why the current setup is good. Most of them are political in the sense that like, we think of taxes as picking and choosing winners and losers, but we don't think of interest rates as picking winners and losers, even though interest rates totally do pick winners and losers. We just don't think of them doing that politically. So using interest rates to manage the economy is less politically fraught. Or it's the idea that like, you know, um, oh, a democratic government could never respond in a timely fashion in the ways that are needed to manage the macro economy and keep it balanced. So like it's good that we have these technocrats who at the Federal Reserve who are handling things instead. Although, I mean, like, really, MMT's, you know, ultimate vision for how this would be managed is almost is almost just as technocratic. Like, they, re- like, um, they really – that's one of the reasons I think they got resistant to the, uh, the use of analogizing MMT to functional finance because functional finance really does rely on taxes and thus democratic decisions by government on a continual basis, by Congress on a continual basis. Um, and that's actually not really what they're envisioning. Uh, so yeah, that's like, those are like my, I like, I, I don't have a, I don't have a concrete definitive answer for you, but like, yeah, I think all those things are kind of right. like wishy-washy in there. Well, Ryan, you tell me what you think as we transition to the next topic, because I think this might be a good place to do that. Uh, it seems to me that Keynes, literally not just Keynesians, but Keynes and FDR back in the day, um, in the New Deal and their response to the crises of the time 
we're definitely taking chances and doing things and experimenting uh, economically and politically in ways that maybe you can analogize to MMT. And when we're talking about the Green New Deal and we're talking about job guarantee, uh, there's a lot of unknowns, but like the basic conservative or risk-taking binary seems like the MMTers are more on the side that Keynes and FDR were on, doesn't it? Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, you, you look at, um, the World War II economy, it was gigantic borrowing, which was backstopped by the Fed and in a very coercive way, uh, you know, especially afterwards, you know, they had regulation Q and they had, you know, I mean, the, 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 uh, the Fed officials at some points would they would like go around to banks and be like, "We notice you're not holding enough treasuries. We're going to remember this next time you need anything from us." Um, and and financial repression, you know, um, basically just trying to pin down the the financial sector and force them to to fund this thing. And at, and on the other hand, this like elaborate price control mechanism. Um, I don't know that Keynes would have really disagreed with. I think he basically endorsed all of that stuff. You know, he thought it was he thought it was like a uh, a gr- a great way of doing things for the most part. Actually, in fact, thinking about it, you know, I wrote a piece about John Kenneth Galbraith, who was the uh, head of price controls. Uh, during World War II for a while. And Keynes actually came to his department and said that this is no good because you need to be um, controlling taxes via inflation. Or, sorry, you need to be controlling inflation via taxes. And they had found by experience that that just wasn't enough and that what you needed, in fact, was a was a regulatory apparatus to to coordinate this stuff and to stop people from... Um, you know, uh, raising prices beyond what was uh, actually justified. So, yeah, I guess in that sense, I would say that that uh, it 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 was a very il- illustrative experience in terms of you know managing an advanced economy at its absolute maximum output you know this is this is i would say the the time in which the the us economy was pushed to its absolute limit and in a way that that worked quite well you know it's like if you have sufficient determination then you can really get a incredible performance but it did take the context of wartime which uh, you know is not really uh, a total war mobilization, rather, and that really is not on the horizon, I suppose. All right, that's the uh, end of this part of the interview. Tune in for our next uh, episode when we'll discuss the job guarantee with Jeff, and we'll see you next time. Last but not least, we have a friendly reminder that we have a Patreon. You can support the show with five dollars a month and get an extra episode every week. Uh, We really appreciate the support, and it helps us keep this going.